John chapter 1. And we'll be in verse 29 today. So John now begins three sections in which he is going to start these sections with the phrase, the next day. And so what we will see over the next three Sundays are what happened in three successive days. And we will encounter five people who were the first to believe and affirm that Jesus was the Messiah or is the Messiah. We will see John the Baptist, another aspect of him today, um, and his affirmation of things we will see Andrew and Peter um, and possibly the Apostle John next week um, who's kind of indirectly potentially mentioned there and then we will see uh, two weeks from today uh, Philip and Nathaniel. Uh, these are the first five people who affirmed and saw in the reality that Jesus is the Messiah. And so these three successive days that we will look at, look at over the next three weeks Give us a lot of unique, good information for us to look at and learn from what is uh, here in these uh, early great encounters um, with Christ. As we come to the text today, there are two great events in the life of Jesus that have already taken place. And as we've already established, John wrote his gospel at the very end of the first century, potentially as late as 95 AD. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote their gospels sometime in the 50s, and so it's been, it's been at least, some people have speculated John wrote his gospel sometime as early, at least early as um, 85 AD, and so the gospels have been around, the first three, the synoptics, for 30 to 40 years, and so John doesn't deal with something that Matthew, Mark, and Luke deal with, and they're two very big events, but I think they're important for us uh, by way this morning uh, to point out. Two great events. One is the baptism of Jesus. John will briefly mention it this morning. And the other one is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. We know this took place from the synoptics. That Jesus was baptized. He came from Nazareth. Came all the way down where John the Baptist is baptizing. He himself was baptized. From that moment of baptism, it says immediately he was led by the Spirit to go into the desert. Where he fasted, did not eat for 40 days. He encountered Satan with three Uh, encounters temptations that are there and then it tells us that after that John returned or Jesus returned back to where John the Baptist was baptizing and that's where we will take up um, the text today but these two events have taken place already when we come to the text today the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus there's a church in Germany where at the very top of the tower um, there is a carved in the stone there a picture of a small lamb that is there a tourist was there one day, and he, he asked the people of the town, why is that lamb, the picture of that lamb up there on the tower? And so they began to relay the story. When they were building that church and they were building that t- tower, one of the men was up on scaffolding up there, and he fell off of the tower all the way down to the ground. They couldn't see what happened on the bottom, but they, their fears were this. There's no way that he could have survived this. So they hurried down the scaffolding, came down and stepped outside and they found the man lying on the ground alive. And what they discovered was a flock of sheep were walking by and the man landed on a lamb, a small lamb, and it softened the blow, but it crushed the lamb. And that's what John is going to tell us about today. He's going to talk about the lamb that has been crushed on our behalf uh, to redeem us um, from 
our sin. So John's going to make a big deal today about the Lamb. And this is a really big deal. This Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. You and I, as you know, um, if you look around us, we have reached a tipping point. Well, we're beyond the tipping point in this nation of uh, rebellion against God and apathy against God and all of that. Um, this current young generation right now, um, the, the, little, the little ones don't have a generation name yet because there's no statistics with them as the life choices and their worldview, but the other generations here, but the one that, that is predominant right now, this student generation, is the first generation in the history of this country where the majority of them do not hold a Christian worldview. There have been a number of studies just a few weeks ago, a really big one came out, and about 48% of them, uh, or about 52, excuse me, 52% of them say, we are none, we're just none. We have no belief, we have no perspective, we have no worldview of anything. And this tipping point that has come in our country where um, this lack of faith and this uh, loss of a Christian worldview is dramatically affecting us everywhere. We live in a day and time in our country which has not been this way in the history of our nation uh, where an agnostic and atheistic view among the younger generation is the predominant view of things. And I think you, I think you should always ask questions is how well is that doing us? How well are we doing shifting from a Christian worldview that had dominated our country for so long but is now gone? And what you have with an atheistic worldview and an agnostic worldview is you have a man-centered perspective of life because that, that's all that you can have if you're an agnostic or an atheist is your viewpoint of things is the thing that's going to guide you. Um, and my hope in walking through the Gospel of John over these next probably four years, just to be honest with us, um, uh, and I'm being really honest about that. I mapped this out a week ago, um, and, and it's probably, it'll be, we'll be in John, we'll finish John 21 sometime four years from now probably uh, with all the stuff that we have to do in between and all that. Um, and I'm praying that we would be transformed by this gospel. I think, it's, I think it's possibly, the book of Romans is really significant, but I think the gospel of John is absolutely critical. And you may not know this or not, in the Muslim world today, God is using the Gospel of John to bring people to faith in untold numbers, the Gospel of John. And I, I just pray and have been asking, God, would you give us a little bit of that taste of what you're doing in the Islamic world right now and radically changing people who do, don't worship Jesus. So <clears throat> this series that we are looking at is critical. We're beginning to walk through now the stories of Jesus' encounters with specific people. And there are so many things to learn today. We will see today some great affirmation of um, what we need to see about Christ that, are, that is really, really important. And we're going to look one more time at John the Baptist. And then we won't come to John until in more detail until chapter 3. Um, but I, let's look at this. Let's look at the text, John 1, 29, and let's go down to 30, 34. And we'll be in this section this morning. So the next day, so this is... Up there, these things took place in Bethany across from the Jordan in 28, uh, where John was baptizing. So the next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man 
who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed that he aware of to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. All right, let's walk through this. First thing I want us to see this morning is I want to talk about the Lamb of God. And we're going to spend the majority of our time today on this first point. So 29 says, the next day. So let's, let's talk about this for a moment. So Christ has gone away. Baptism has happened. Jesus has gone away. He's come back. From the, from the temptation, the 40 days, he's there. He's about to begin his ministry. He's walking, and John says these words. He sees Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John had the unique privilege to be the first one to say, There he is, right there. There he is. Right there is him. He's got people around him. And he said, That's the one right there that we have been waiting for. Now imagine with me for a moment. John the Baptist has been baptizing thousands upon thousands of people have been coming out there. You've got other people in Israel who have a heart for God and a longing for God to restore the nation again. And so they've become John's disciples. They've come out to the sky and he's, John's been investing his life in them. And I think one of the things that they probably, because John knew that Jesus was coming, the Father, it's clear there, we read in the text that he said, listen, you're going to know the one who's come to rescue us, the Lamb of God, you'll know, you'll see the Spirit descend on. So John has, had, has gotten information from the Father that Jesus is about to reveal Himself, and He will know it at the baptism. So the baptism has happened and taken place, and John knows that Jesus is the Lamb. He's the one who is going to do that. So he's got disciples, and they probably have a lot of conversation about the Lamb of God who's going to come and bear sin and give His life as a sacrifice and likely they have talked about old testament passages about a lamb if you remember in genesis chapter 4 cain and abel one's a farmer one has animals abel has the animals he brings his his offering to god god accepts it cain brings his offering and god says no and so it's clear there that god had told them here's how you are to bring your gifts to me cain didn't follow god's way and so god said i'm not accepting that but abel did and guess what he brought likely probably brought a lamb and he brought that and well he actually did bring that and there it was and god and so they likely john the baptist and his disciples are talking about the lamb that god accepted in genesis 4 Remember in Genesis, Abraham and Isaac are going up to the mountain. And Isaac gets laid down and he says, hey, uh, where's, where's the lamb? And, Isaac, and, and Abraham says to Isaac, the Lord will provide himself a lamb. He will. John the Baptist probably and the disciples talked about the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12. They probably had many conversations about um, the Levitical lamb in the book of Leviticus, particularly in Exodus 29. There's a great passage there in Exodus 29, 38 and 39. And then likely John the Baptist 
with his disciples talked about Isaiah chapter 53, the lamb that would be led to the slaughter. Now think about this for a moment. Let's say you've been, John the Baptist has been talking about this quite a bit with his disciples. You've been talking about all these Old Testament lambs, representation of sin and sacrifice. And I think one of the most profound things that have ever been said in Israel's history is the day that Jesus is coming and John the Baptist says, look right there. That's the lamb that's going to take away the sin of the world. There he is right there. He's right there walking. He's not like the other lambs. And I think this is incredibly profound because John is establishing right there with his disciples the hope of the world is now present. And I think it's a, probably a shocking moment for his disciples. There he is. That's the one that we have been waiting for. And John is making this reality clear. Here's this carpenter from Galilee. Is, he is the son of God. He is the lamb of God who has come to lay his life down. And I believe, again, it is probably one of the most shocking things that has ever been said in Israel. And the Baptist is saying, that lamb right there that's in a body, it's a man, he is the fulfillment of all those thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands and millions of sheep that have been killed over the last several years in this nation. And he came, John said, not just for the Jews, but he came for the whole world. And so this is another example of John saying, I'm not it. Watch this. He's telling his disciples, I don't have anything to offer you but him. And so all I can do is point you to him. He's the one that you need to follow. And I love the heart of John the Baptist of continually pushing people away from focusing on him and, and pushing people to say, look at Jesus and so here is another one of those examples. And he tells them, look, look, behold, behold, fix your gaze on that one right there. He is the one who is the hope of your life. It's not your good works. It's not the rituals in the temple. It is not water baptism that I've been doing, even though I've been told to do this. That's not your hope. He is the hope for your lives. I read an interesting story about Spurgeon when he was 15 years old this week. Spurgeon's father and grandfather were both pastors and at age 15 he had read many um, puritan books and was deeply conflicted about his salvation and his sin and how to deal with his sin at age 15 so he was walking to his normal church and it was a real snowy day and he wasn't going to be able to get to his church and so he turned in a corner in the town that he lived in and he went to a small Methodist chapel and because of the weather, the pastor couldn't come that day and there were only about 12 or 14 people uh, in the room that day. So the pastor couldn't make it and so a layperson got up and he had one verse text that day. It was Isaiah chapter 45 verse 22 that says this, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. So Spurgeon wrote about this experience, about what the man said that day. Listen to these. This is quoting Spurgeon. He's quoting the pastor. My dear friends, this, this is the pastor speaking or the layperson. This is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now looking don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. 
Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You must be the biggest fool, or you may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. And then the man, Spurgeon says, pointed to the text and says, Look unto me, God says, not to yourself. He went on about ten minutes or so telling everyone who Christ was that they were to look to. He seemed to be at the end of his tether when he looked directly at the young Spurgeon in the room and said, Young man, you look miserable. I've never tried that yet, and maybe I should do this. (laughs) Young man, you look very miserable. And you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. If you don't obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And then he shouted, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. And then Spurgeon wrote in his autobiography, he said that he had been waiting to do 50 things to try to figure out what to do with this sin. But that word look, he said, cleared it away all the clouds. He looked to Christ and the boy who would, who would go on to become the, one of the greatest preachers of the 19th century was saved that day on a snowy day. And you and I in this room today need to be reminded that it is not this church, it is not your good works, it is not money, it is not anything in this life that breaks our fall but the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John the Baptist says, look, behold, behold. So who are we to behold? Well, he says, behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. Let's talk about the Lamb here for a moment. Um, I don't know if I'm crazy. Maybe I'm crazy and I'll just be crazy. But I, I I just have a lot of trouble with music that's out there today that's labeled Christian that is so me centered and man centered. And this is, this, is, this is a dominant theme in our culture today. We have created Jesus not to be the Lamb of God who's come to die, but he's almost like a boyfriend who just loves us and rescues us, and, and we, are, we are just so special. He's been waiting for all of us to be born so that he can love on us, and what would he do if he didn't have an opportunity to love on us? And we have created an image of him that is not accurate. We do not add to the nature of God. Are y'all with me? He was not waiting for our rebellious, angry, born in sin hearts to be born. He wasn't waiting, he wasn't waiting for us to do that. Now, He made us? Absolutely. But we are not the center. His glory is the center of His life, by the way. He's the only one who gets to have Himself to be the center of His life. God only gets to do that, not us. Only God gets to be the center. We are not the center. He's not arrogant in that. Because He is committed to His glory, guess what? That means that you and I get the benefit that He he does this. He's going to give us the best thing that He can give us, and that is Himself and the greatness of His glory. And that is the hope of our lives more than anything. And so this idea today that is so dominant out there is, is, is not what the Bible teaches. It is not what the Scripture teaches. He is a lamb who came to take away the sin of the world. And so John the Baptist says, Behold, disciples, listen, we've been talking about this lamb. There he is right there. Behold, look, look 
to him. Don't look to me. Don't look to my water baptism, even though God did it. He's the one. He's the one who takes away the sin of the Lord. So you behold him. You look at the lamb. Jeremiah wrote this. Great, two great Old Testament pictures of the lamb. Jeremiah eleven nineteen. But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He is the true sacrificial lamb. Paul said it like this, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So John is setting forth for us this, that all these pictures in the Old Testament about the coming of the Lamb, the writers longed to see what was now walking in Israel that John was pointing out. There is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. See, John was the first to see who Jesus was and the cost it would take. When John says, behold, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, he is foreshadowing what would happen at the end of Jesus' life. Lambs were born to die, in a sense, in Israel. Watch this. Listen. You know what they did in the morning? They took a lamb and killed it. You know what they did in the evening? They took a lamb and they killed it every day. Every day for thousands of years. There were other times there was blood sacrifices for other things. And now John is saying this profound thing. All of these thousands upon thousands and millions of lambs, there's the fulfillment walking right there. There he is. They couldn't take away, but he can. So you behold him, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And I believe that one of our great prayers in our own lives must be that God would give us a holy hatred for what sent Jesus to the cross, and that's sin. And again, I think that's missing today that... Uh, We just know that we've messed up and we just move on and don't think it's a big deal to confess it. And it's a big deal to confess it. Our sin sent Jesus to the the cross. and, And the death of Christ on the cross should move you and I to have a hatred, a holy hatred for sin. So watch, John says, behold, behold what? Behold a lamb. Well, what kind of lamb? Well, he's the lamb of God. Now, in Old Testament times, the father would choose the lamb. So if the Weems were Old Testament Jews, and it was time, Passover time uh, for this, Josh would have the responsibility to choose the lamb to be sacrificed for the family. So Josh would find a lamb that was without spot, without blemish, and it would be taken and it would be sacrificed for the Weems family, Passover time. Now listen to what John the Baptist is saying. There's only one lamb that has ever been chosen by the Father, the Lamb of God, and that Lamb of God is Jesus. And so when the Baptist says, look, brothers, right there, there's the fulfillment of all the lambs that have ever been killed throughout our nation's history. He's walking right there. He's the Lamb of God. He's the one the Father has chosen to come and bear the sin of the world to take it away. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus is the one the Father chose to embrace that role. He's the only one who could fulfill that role. Y'all remember Psalm 103, 12. We love this. As far as the east is from the west, 
what does he do? He has cast our sin that way. It goes. It just goes. And, and the idea that is connected with this of taking our sin away is bearing. He bore our sin. And by bearing our sin, he takes it away because of his life and his death. So here's what John the Baptist says. Behold. Behold what? The lamb. Who's the lamb? Jesus is the lamb. He's the fulfillment of all of that. He's the picture. What kind of lamb? Well, he's a lamb of God. He's the lamb that the father chose, not what Josh Weems chose or what another father chose throughout Israel's history. He's the lamb the father, the eternal father chose. He's the lamb of God. Well, what did he do? He takes away sin. He takes away sin. In, interesting here, it's not sins. You notice that? It's sin. The big pile, just pile it all right there of all the sin in the history of the world. And guess what happened? Jesus bore that. Just placed on him, in him. And, and, and I want to, I, I, I like, uh, man, I, I, I guess I have to say it. It's, it I, I prayed about this. I'm just going to say it anyway. There's a popular song on Christian radio right now that says this, I will send out an army to rescue you. Now, in the Old Testament, God did that one time with the prophet Elijah. In the New Testament, do you know what God did to rescue us? He sent his son right here. He didn't send out an army. He sent his son. And that's another one of those examples of those man-centered Christian songs that are out there. A lot of it, of that song, is really good. But that part, ugh, just, uh, just, I change my radio when I hear it. Because he didn't send out an army to rescue me. He sent the Lamb of God to rescue me. Are you all with me? Okay. We, again, this is another one of those examples of the boyfriend nature of Jesus. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna send an army out. No, no, Jesus is just going to come himself to rescue us from our sin. His death as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, can do two things. One is this, he can take away the guilt of individual sin. So my individual sin that I'm responsible for, that I, I do, I choose to do, he takes that away. Listen to what Peter said, First Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So not only does he take away the individual guilt of our sin, but secondly, he, he has the power as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world to deal with our sin nature that we are born with. Listen to what Paul said, Romans 5.18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And so when Christ, it says, takes away the sin of the world, he takes away the guilt of our individual sin, and not only that, but he also deals with the guilt that we are born, we're just born with it, our sin nature from Adam, and he takes away that as well. Now bear with me here. I told you we're going to be a lot on point one. I'm going to read some passages. Hebrews 9, 24 and following. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. 
For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all. At the end of the ages, to put away sin, watch this, by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for Him. He is not going to be killed again. He's not going to shed His blood again. That was a one-time, once-for-all thing. So when He comes back a second time, it's to rescue and redeem or fulfill our salvation of those who are waiting for Him to come and to make all things right. Isaiah 53, 4, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. First John 3, 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Hebrews 10, 1, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, Make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered if they could fix the problem? The writer of Hebrews says, Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats and lambs to take away sins. See, every previous sacrifice that was ever made in the Old Testament foreshadowed what was going to be accomplished in the life of Jesus and it would be fulfilled in Jesus as he was laid down on the altar of wood on the cross. Incidentally, it's the present tense. John says here, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes present tense, meaning this is always going to be a continual thing. It will never be exhausted. Anybody who places their faith and trust in Christ, he takes their sin. They are forgiven. They are a child of God. Now, let's deal with this just for a moment because I think it's important. The last phrase here. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the where? The world, right? Let's deal with this. Uh, We have to deal with it with integrity, and it's really important. Um, He takes away the sin, John says, of the whole world. Um, So what does that mean? Does that mean that everybody's going to get to heaven? Is this a teaching of universalism? He takes away the sin of the whole world, so eventually it doesn't matter really what people do. Everybody's going to get to go there. No, that's not what it means. Here's what it means. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Of the world means this. He's the only one who can take sin away. That's what it means. There's nobody else who can take sin away but Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean everybody's getting in. Luke 14 speaks about this invitation to this great banquet. Revelation 22, 17 says this, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, let he who hears me come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires to take of the water of life without price. All are invited, but do all come? No, they do not. All do not come. And so his work was not just confined to the Jew. It was, conf- it was to be given to every people group, every language, every tribe. We know this. 
in Revelation, we see before the throne that there are people from every aspect of everywhere that are before him. Now, we're about to move on from point one. I have six more points, but they'll be brief. Sacrificial lambs. I thought about those this week in the Old Testament. You remember the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve sin. They hear God walking in the garden. Where do they run to? Well, what's the first act? You know what the first action? Remember what their first action was? They realized they didn't have any clothes on. They're like, oh, we got we to gotta fix this. So they got leaves and covered their body parts and went and hid in the bushes. Well, God came along and calls them out. They come out. God talks to Adam and Eve and he talks to Satan. And at the end of Genesis 1, there's a unique thing there. And it says God made clothing of skin, animal skin. To cover their nakedness. Now we don't know. In Genesis 3. But I think we can. Safely. Kind of get an idea. That probably a lamb in the garden of Eden. Lost its life that day. Because the Old Testament pattern was. Is that a lamb would lay its life down. To deal with sin. So it's possible in Genesis 3. An innocent lamb. Who had nothing to do with eating the fruit. And rebelling against God. Lost its life. Well, we know the second sacrifice was for a family at the Passover. It was for families, Exodus 12. The third sacrifice of lamb in the nation of Israel was the Day of Atonement. It was the offering um, that was made there, and you can read about that in Leviticus 23, 27. The fourth picture of the lamb is a New Testament picture, and it's Jesus. First three couldn't permanently deal with sin, but this fourth one had the power to deal with sin. And so the fourth is for the world in the life of Christ. And Jesus went to the altar of the cross, not just to show the love of God. Let's be careful, let's be honest about this. Does it reveal the love of God? Absolutely, the cross reveals God's great love. But another reason Jesus went all the way to the cross, because it reveals he hates sin. But sin's a really, 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 really big, big deal. And for the Apostle John, this phrase, Lamb of God, is a big deal. In the book of Revelation alone, John uses Lamb 29 times. For John the Apostle, it is a really, really big deal. All right, point one is done. Are y'all okay? Did y'all survive that? Y'all all right? Okay. Let's look at, at, look at verse 30 with me. Let's talk about a few things that John the Baptist is continuing to affirm and John the Apostle thinks are really important for us to get about Christ. Verse 30, this is he of whom I said, and again he's still talking to his disciples that are, where, that are there with him. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. So John the Baptist is affirming two unique things about Jesus here. He's saying, look, there's a man walking right there, but that man is the Messiah. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John the Baptist is affirming this reality, the incarnation of Christ, that God in a body is walking right there. So he's affirming there's God. Not only is he affirming the humanity of Jesus, he's also affirming um, the divinity of Jesus that, that only God can take away sin. 
Man can't take away sin. Only God can do that. And so he's reinforcing the apostle is through the testimony of John the Baptist to say, I want to remind you of this reality. In Jesus, you've got all man and you've got all God living in one place in a body. And so John the Baptist is also affirming this, the preexistent nature of Jesus. That John the Baptist, they were cousins, was six months older physically, had born, been born six months before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So that's why he says, he who was, even though, he, even though I, I am older, he ranks before me because he was before me because he is eternal. This was a big deal with the Jews, the religious leaders with Jesus. Remember when he said, before Abraham was, I am I'm before Abraham. What are you talking about? You're here with us. Abraham was way back when. Here's the reality. John wants us to get this. We need to embrace. Listen, church. Our culture says something completely opposite about this. That we are products of something. And we are not. We have been made in the image of our creator. And we are born in sin. We need one to come to redeem us of our sin. But Jesus is the one who made it all happen. You see, if he's not before creation, what is he? He's a product of creation. So he's not Lord over it. But if he is is the creator, then he is Lord over it. And so therefore, it is his world. If he's just a product of the creation, it's really not his world, and he doesn't have really have a, a lot of say to it. He's just connected to it from that standpoint. And so I, I want to remind us, because this is a big deal to the Apostle John, in chapter 1, we must embrace the eternal nature of Christ. This is God. This Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, He is the eternal God, and we must trust Him. We never should see Him less. Thirdly, John says this about Jesus. Not only does he affirm the eternal nature of Christ, look in 31 and 32. I myself, he says, did not know him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. John the Baptist is saying this, the greatest revelation that has come to us is Jesus. And so I'm telling you, disciples, behold, look, the Lamb of God who's come, he's eternal, he never had a beginning. He's not going to have an end. Um, though I'm six months physically older than him, he ranks before me because he was before me because he's always existed. And not only that, he is the greatest, fullest revelation of who God is before us. And I came baptizing to get the nation ready to see the fullness of God is seen in Jesus Christ. And so the great fullness of the revelation comes in Jesus. And so John says, listen, I didn't know him. Now, they knew the stories. Now, you don't, I mean, you had to know the families talked about this angel speaking to John the Baptist's father. And they had to, as a family, talked about um, all the stuff connected with Mary and, and her pregnancy and all the stuff like that. But John didn't, you know, I mean, hey, let's face it. That guy working in Nazareth as a carpenter, does he look like the son of God who's come to take away the sin of the world? No, his fingers get cut, he bleeds, and, and he, he, get, he sweats, and, 
And now all of a sudden, so just the fullness of this reality wasn't fully there until the baptism. So John says, listen, I, for this purpose, I came baptizing with water to kind of get everybody ready to see the great revelation that the Son of God came. By the way, John the Baptist was not Presbyterian or Catholic or Episcopal, okay? He didn't sprinkle. He's, he was a Baptist. John the Baptist was a Baptist. He baptized people, okay? He put them under the water. That's the word here, immersion. That's the word. It means to put under. Can we put this to rest? The Greek means put under. What does that mean? Does that mean sprinkle? No, that means to put under. You dunk people. We need a total washing. And so there's my proof text that John the Baptist was a Baptist, okay? All right. He's the Lamb of God. His nature is eternal. He is the most full revelation of God. Now, I want to just touch on that before we talk about the, Ho- the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> you and I should never ask the question, what's God like? should never ask it. What is He like? Because the Bible tells us what He's like. He is the most full revelation of God. So we're not waiting for a better picture and a better understanding. We have been given exactly what you and I need. All right, fourthly, let's talk about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Look at 32. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. So at Jesus' baptism, where John the Baptist was there, something that looked like a dove coming down, landed on Jesus. It was clear it was the Holy Spirit. Now let's deal with this for a moment. Please, if you have this up in your home, go take it down today. The Holy Spirit is not a dove. It's not a dove. He's not. This was, here's the picture. We went, we, when we lived in Germany, we had a five and a half hour drive. We can be in the heart of Paris amazing place to live we would go to Notre Dame every time we went to Paris and there's a lady there that we dubbed the pigeon lady and all in front of Notre Dame hundreds of pigeons were there and they would land on her they would flutter up she would feed them and I asked somebody is she here every day yep she's here every day feeding the pigeons and the pigeons would come down and they would land on her okay Now listen to me. The Holy Spirit is not a dove. The Holy Spirit is God. And so they're trying to explain something miraculous, saying it's like when a dove comes down and lands on someone, it was kind of like that. The Holy Spirit came down and landed on Jesus. Do we have that settled? Are you all with me? The Holy Spirit is not a dove, okay? He's not. He is God. Now we know this, though that this is incredibly significant. Because at Jesus' baptism, the Trinity is in full focus. You have Jesus being baptized, you have the Holy Spirit coming down upon Jesus, and you have the Father speaking, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And so at Jesus' baptism, you have this affirmation. And we know from the Old Testament passages, the Holy Spirit would be deeply a part of the ministry of Jesus. Let me just give you a couple of them. Isaiah 11:1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, 
and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 42, 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 61, 1. The spirit of the Lord God. Incidentally, Jesus quotes this in Nazareth one day. Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor and he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort all those who mourn. So Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, one here in Luke chapter four. He identifies himself with that verse. So we have to ask this question. So did Jesus have the spirit was he in relationship with the Spirit before his baptism? It's not a trick question, but if you listen to church circles today, you will hear this. And here's what I would do to answer this question. Did Jesus have the Spirit before his baptism? You and I should be really, really careful to separate the Trinity. Really, really careful to do so. So Jesus, the whole time that he was in Nazareth, Was he separated from the Holy Spirit as God? No. No. God is one. He is three in one. Can I explain that perfectly this morning? No, I cannot. People have been trying to explain it for 2,000 years. But we know that the, the Scripture affirms it, that God is three in one. And I will emphasize one there. Really, really important. So... What does this mean? It just simply means this. That Jesus was going to do his ministry in the power of the Spirit in relationship with the Spirit. By the way, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. And he created all things, and without him was not anything made that has been made. And so did Jesus have the power, listen, to do ministry as the Logos, the powerful creator God? Could he have walked around Israel as powerful? Yeah, he's, he's, he's God. He's Jesus. But the Trinity was not going to be separated. The Father was going to be part of the ministry. Jesus would be the one here doing the ministry and the Spirit would be it. And so this is important because this is where the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and other cults go is they separate the Trinity, they deny the Trinity, and you have these cult-like things. And so Jesus was not separate from the Holy Spirit until his baptism. Like, oh, it wasn't one of those moments where, oh, I've been missing you for so, you know, for 30 years, I've been missing you, and finally we're reunited together. No, 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 no. You cannot separate the Trinity. So what about the cross when Jesus said, Father, where are you? Did the Trinity separate itself from one another? No, no. It cannot happen. But he became sin for us on our behalf. And there was a change in that moment where our sin was transferred to him as he bore in his body 
this. And so I, I have to stress this this morning to us. This is important. The Trinity has never been separated. Never. They will never be separated from one another. And so Jesus would do his ministry in the power of the Spirit. Look at 33. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So John says, I didn't really fully know, but the Father told me that when you see the Spirit come down um, upon this one that you baptize, you'll know that that is he. And so God gave John the Baptist the surest sign that Jesus was the Messiah. And so therefore, John the Baptist as well is a faithful and reliable witness of his testimony of Jesus because he was an eyewitness of this. Was he an apostle? No. But he was an eyewitness of the Spirit coming down upon Jesus and his testimony proves that he was reliable. So fifthly, I just want to say this, that the Spirit reveals Jesus. Listen to this from Paul, 1 Corinthians 2.10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So this is important. If we see the glory of Christ this morning, guess who's revealing that to us? The Holy Spirit. He is God living inside of us. And so His role is to take what He hears and to share it with us and reveal this. This is His role to teach us and interpret spiritual truth. John 16, 13. When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he speaks. He declares to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Three times, Jesus says, here's what the Holy Spirit does. He takes what is mine and he makes it known to you. He makes it known to you. All right, six, Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now I want to deal with a question as we finish up this morning. When do we get the Holy Spirit? <clears throat> when do you get the Holy Spirit? Do you believe by faith and then... Uh, the Spirit comes immediately, or do you believe by faith, and then later on you pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to come into your life at a later date? Now, that may sound silly to you, but that is taught in charismatic churches everywhere. So here's what the Bible, I think, is absolutely clear on, and I would hope for you today, would you make the shift in your head? When we trust in Christ 
and have faith in Christ, we immediately are baptized by the Holy Spirit. Immediately, immediately He comes in to our lives. I've got some text to say it. Acts 2.38, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.4, 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith. How many baptisms? One baptism. One baptism. Only one baptism, not two. Romans 8.9, You, however are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So listen, do you hear that? If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to God. But on August the 25th, I came to Christ. But on October the 25th, I don't have the Holy Spirit yet. So do I belong to God? No, you don't if you don't have the Spirit. If you trusted in Jesus on August the 25th, you got the Spirit on August the 25th. You're not waiting to October the 25th to get the Spirit. You get the Spirit immediately. Ephesians 1.13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So it happened immediately. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So here are some thoughts on the Holy Spirit and His work for us to ask the question, when do we get the Holy Spirit? At salvation or later time? We get it at salvation. So therefore, Christians should never seek to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because they already have been. Here's what we should do. We should seek to be filled by the Holy Spirit daily. There's a difference. We've been baptized by the Spirit. He's been placed in us. He's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. He seals our salvation but we seek to be filled. Ephesians 5.18 And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 all the way to verse 25 talks about walking in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. So don't seek to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. It's not biblical. We get everything we need at salvation. For His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Everything. We're not waiting. Lastly, and I have seen, 34, and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the first time John uses this phrase, Son of God, um, in his gospel. He's going to use it all through this gospel that Jesus is the Son of God. So let me close with this. And looking at the Jews in the first century, and even before, they wanted a warrior king who would free them. You know what they got? They got a lamb. They wanted a prophet to speak for God for them in the first century, and they got one who laid his life down and died. They wanted a powerful Messiah, but they got a sacrificed lamb instead. They wanted one who would come and destroy their enemies but they got a lamb whom their enemies murdered. And what they failed to see, and I hope that you and I do not fail to see, is this, is they would never have a king and they would never have a savior if they didn't first of all have a lamb. You've got to have the lamb who lays his life down to have King Jesus. You remember that great 
picture in Revelation 5. I think I shared this thought a few weeks ago, but let's close with this. John's seen this beautiful vision in the throne room of heaven. And the Father seated on the throne. And he's got the title deed to the earth. Who's going to possess the earth? Who does the earth belong to? And they were looking for somebody on the earth. They were looking for somebody who was worthy to take the title deed to the earth. And they looked everywhere. No, but nobody, nobody was worthy. Nobody could be found. And John, the ba- John, not the Baptist, but John, the apostle, started weeping. <laughs> and an angel came over and said, hey, calm down, bud. It's all right. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is worthy. And so Jesus walks over and he takes the title deed. And John saw this. And here's what John, the revelator, said. This John that's writing this, he said this. He looked like a lamb who had been slain. We talked about this weeks ago, but let's just remind ourselves of this. One day we will see the scars that bore our shame. For he will have them still for all of eternity as the incarnated God who will reign forever and ever. And he, we don't have this glorious one unless we first have a lamb who came to lay his life down. And so that's why we worship him. That's why he's awesome. That's why we sing. That's why he's all. That's why he's everything. Because he's the lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. Let's pray.